This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week. We have card number 175, Kevin Bass, outfielder for the Houston Astros. And card number 291, Houston Astros team leaders card. Kevin Bass is also in RBI baseball, so we will visit Brian in the RBI corner in just a moment. But before that, we're always on the lookout for great mascot accomplishments around the world. And we saw a world record that was broken in the NPB this week. Cebu Lions mascot Leo broke the Guinness world record for most backflips performed by a mascot in 30 seconds. Leo did 31 in a row to great cheers to the crowd at a Cebu Lions game. Cebu Lions being a team where I looked on the list of MLB players that had played at the Cebu Lions and I saw that Tony Fernandez, who we will cover later in the series, played for the Cebu Lions. Two other names that showed up on that previous Cebu Lions, we have Steve Ontiveros, but not the Steve Ontiveros who's in the 1988 top set. <laughs> there were two Steve Ontiveroses. <laughs> this is the guy who was not in the set. Also, Orestes Destrada, who later would play for the Marlins. Orestes Destrada was a star for the Cebu Lions. Uh, Orestes Destrada, wasn't that a play by Aristophanes? Yes. He was the Japan Series MVP in 1990 for the Cebu Lions. One other player who actually is in the set who played for the Cebu Lions was Darren Jackson, who is now the radio color analyst for my Chicago White Sox, played in MPB for a season for Cebu. What did you think of this accomplishment by Leo? This was a truly remarkable athletic achievement for Leo the Lion. Leo, of course, and his sister, Lena, are the Cebu Lions mascots there, based off of the Kimba the White Lion anime series by Osamu Tezuka. And Tezuka actually designed the Cebu Lions mascot. So this is connected with this famous Japanese anime that record, 31 in 30 seconds, do you think it is physically possible to do even more? Like, that's an outrageous flips to seconds ratio. I am sure that gymnasts in Olympic competition or in a professional competition could probably flip faster. But while wearing a mascot costume, I got to think the drag aerodynamically and also the friction on the ground both by feet and paws, I think that it would probably make the flipping go a little bit slower. You know, we need to redesign the Leo costume. Maybe a new Nazo no Sakana form could be very aerodynamically designed to specifically break this record. I do like to look at the mascot wiki to see if there's any breaking news, any beefs that the mascots have. (laughs) Leo doesn't seem to have any mascot controversies, except his sister, Lena, is, quote, quite silly and picks on her younger brother at times, pulling his ear or pushing him down. That sibling rivalry paid off big time for Leo, overachieving, breaking a world record and rubbing it in his older sister's face. Good job, Leo. But now let's get to Kevin Bass 
And why are we talking about Kevin today? We got two cards. Love to talk about two cards. Kevin Bass is a guy that I remember fondly from looking at his baseball card, seeing his stat lines, specifically 1986 and 87. Kevin Bass had some of those good power numbers and good speed number seasons that I, as a White Sox fan, thought were great seasons. But now looking back, it was like 20 steals in a season and 20 home runs. Looks kind of pedestrian now, but it tells a, a story of a different time in baseball and also a story of what it took to be a good player in the Astrodome. Kevin Bass was traded from Milwaukee to Houston in a deal that we discussed in the Don Sutton episode. Aside from getting us two cards, he also gets us a trip to the RBI corner, and he has a Sabre bio by Philip Bolda. So thank you, Philip, for your work on this Kevin Bass bio. Well, let's go to the front of 175. We have a good-looking card here. Kevin Bass, right-handed batter. Looks like he's just put one into deep right field. This might be gone. He's looking way up there, way back. Or maybe it's a 390-foot flyout. One of the two. He looks athletic in this picture. You can see well-defined muscles in his legs. He looks like a just a speedy outfielder in this picture. He also has a really great mustache. This is a mustache I would put on par with the Hackman, Jeffrey Leonard's mustache. And these are two players that I kind of associate because of their stat lines and their mustaches. Two guys who would hit 20 home runs, steal 20 bases, and played in the outfield. Not great on-base percentage guys. But a player who you want on your team and a guy who I, as a kid in the 80s, thought were like a an Eric Davis light. Power, <laughs> speed, but not an extreme amount of either. He looks like a good athlete in this picture. The uniform, though, is pretty generic. It almost reminds me of, I don't know if this was a thing in all grocery stores, but in Jewel Osco, my local grocery store, when I was a kid, the generic brand just was a white bag of flour with flour in <laughs> dark blue, black print. That's what I see on this Astros jersey. And especially after the tequila sunrise jerseys were horribly cast aside to then go to this off-brand Kevin Bass jersey, it's tragic. Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate angle, basically, because you can tell by looking at the very, very top of his shoulders that there are colors there. There is trim that's multicolored that's at the top of this jersey and on the front. But because he has just swung the bat, all you can see is the back of his jersey and the side. And the pants have a black trim. It looks very black, not navy. So it just looks like it's all black and white. Like on the back, it would just say baseball instead of uh, on your uh, flower on your bag of flour. But he does look athletic here. It does look like he's just hit the ball a long way. But it would have been nice if the trim had been, you know, navy or something like that. Or orange with, you know, some of the other color. Otherwise, a good shot. Let's go to the back of 175, and we have Kevin Bass, outfielder. Height 6 feet, 180. Switch hitter, right-handed thrower, drafted by the Brewers in the second round of 1977. Born May 12, 1959 in Redwood City, California, with a home in Sugarland, Texas. Kevin does get the distinction of having one of those divisible by 25 cards. So he's got the 5 at the end of it 
a card with a five or a zero is a sign of a, a star. And Kevin Bass clearly was one of the premier players in the National League at this time, or at least had been an all-star previously. So this is one of the premier cards here. Kevin was born in Redwood City in the Bay Area, but grew up in Menlo Park, not the one in New Jersey, but the one in California. This area was first inhabited by the Olone people prior to Spanish colonization. The population of the Olone people in the area was estimated around 10 to 20,000 in 1770. But within 100 years, there were systemic efforts by the state and federal government to remove people and eliminate Native people from the area. Within 100 years, there were fewer than 1,000 Olone people remaining in the area. Kevin is the second guy from the Rancho de los Pulgas, the Ranch of the Fleas. And the last one we talked about just a couple weeks ago was Jim Fergosi from San Mateo. That area, Rancho de los Pulgas, was granted, quote unquote, by the Spanish government to the Arguello brothers in 1795. That land grant included present-day San Mateo, Belmont, San Carlos, Redwood City, Atherton, and Menlo Park. Menlo Park does share a name with that place in New Jersey where Thomas Edison's lab was located, but the town in California was named first. It seemed a little odd to me that the city on the West Coast wasn't named after the city on the East Coast. In fact, this town was named by two men who bought the land who were from Menloff in Galway, Ireland. And so they named the town of Menlo Park after their hometown in Ireland. Menlo Park neighbors Palo Alto and Stanford University sits right on the border of the two towns. Menlo Park had around 27,000 people in 1960, now around 33,000. It's a small area geographically, so not a lot of room for growth, unlike some of the other cities in the Bay Area that have had explosive population growth in the last 50 years or so. The largest employer in Menlo Park is Meta, formerly known as Facebook, employs some 18,000 people in the area. Kevin came from an athletic family. His uncle Stan Lefty Johnson was the first African-American to receive a baseball scholarship at the University of San Francisco. He went on to play professionally, mostly as a AAA player for 10 years. He was a very good hitter at AAA, only got into eight major league games for the White Sox and Kansas City A's. He played his final season in 1969 for the Tayo Whales in NPB, and in retirement, he was a West Coast scout for the Red Sox. Kevin's cousin, James Lofton, is an NFL Hall of Fame receiver. Notably for me, as a member of the Buffalo Bills on the Tecmo Super Bowl NES game, Kevin's older brother, Richard, was a teammate of 17-year-old Ricky Henderson on the 1976 Boise A's, and Richard hit 360 on that team, but the next season... At A-level for the Cubs at Pompano Beach, he hit only 220 and was out of baseball. I don't know if Kevin has a a cousin named Lance who was in in NSYNC or Billy, the big mouth bass. Any other famous bass? I'd say you get a kick some ass, sea bass. That was uh, Cam Neely. Cam Neely played sea bass in Dumb and Dumber. That's just another related athlete to Kevin Bass. With that kind of sports lineage, Kevin knew early on what he wanted to do. At five, he started playing Little League Baseball. By 14, he said he made a conscious decision that he was going to be a professional baseball player. He also played football and basketball. In high school, he thought about maybe playing college football. But then he made the high school All-America team 
1977, and baseball scouts started showing up to the Menlo School to watch him play. The Menlo School was a boys-only school when Kevin went there, and it became co-ed just a couple years after he graduated. Some famous alums include all of the founders of Bleacher Report, John Fogarty, not the one from Credence, but the one who was a race car driver, and Gary Johnson, not the guy who ran for president, but this guy played five games for the Angels in 2003. Robbie Krieger, the Doors guitarist, and Bob Weir, guitarist for The Grateful Dead, he went to many different high schools, but he was expelled from multiple high schools. He had an undiagnosed dyslexia issue and was kicked out of a bunch of schools before finding his career in music. Instead of a college football career, Kevin ended up as a Brewers second-round pick in the 1977 draft. The first round had a bunch of 1988 tops players, Harold Baines, Bill Gullickson, Richard Dotson, Bob Welch, Terry Kennedy, and Dave Henderson. And the Brewers' first-round pick was the third overall selection, Paul Molitor. The Brewers' scout said of their switch-hitting outfielder, Kevin Bass, he's got a good arm, good speed, and he has an excellent instinct about going after the ball. Although he had a slow start his first season in Newark, hitting only 182 through 44 games, he turned it on and finished the season at A-ball with a 296 average on the year, adding seven triples and 11 steals. Good speed, only one home run, and he was invited to Major League Spring Training the next year. He got some tips from Cecil Cooper, who would act as a mentor for him during his time with the Brewers. And he spent 1978 at A-level Burlington, Iowa, added some more power, hitting 18 home runs to go along with 36 stolen bases. He made the league's all-star team. And the next two seasons he spent at Double A Holyoke. He was okay the first year, 263, eight home runs, 17 stolen bases. The next year, 1980, Holyoke won the Eastern League title, and Bass earned himself a fun fact. That's right. It says that Kevin led Eastern League with 31 doubles in 1980. Very fun fun. fact. Very fun. On top of those 31 doubles, he had seven triples, 35 steals, and a 300 average to earn that spot on the AA All-Star team. And he and his manager, after that season, both got promoted to AAA Vancouver for 1981, and it took him a season to settle in. He hit only 257 with a 674 OPS that first year, only had two home runs, and he also missed some playing time due to injury. He only played in 97 games. He doesn't seem like a guy who's ready to make a huge leap, but the next year he had a great spring and opened 1982 on the Brewers' big league roster. Yeah, kind of surprising. We don't see that all that often where their major league debut is opening day, but he was on the team through early May playing at 18 games, but going 0 for 9. He was sent back to Vancouver where he hit 315 with 17 homers and 23 steals. He was 23 years old and showing he had potential and became part of a big trade. That September, we get a This Way to the Clubhouse that Kevin was traded to the Astros with Frank DePino and Mike Madden. September 3rd, 1982, the Brewers received Don Sutton, August 30th, 1982. That is a weirdly worded This Way to the Clubhouse because it has the players to be named later (laughs) listed first. Don Sutton was the player to be named before. 
Very strange syntax there. Frank DePino will show up later in the set with the Cubs. He had a couple so-so years for the Astros, and he later played for the Cubs, Cardinals, and Royals. Madden pitched a few seasons for the Astros, but Bass would go straight to the Astros roster. He went 0 for 8 to keep that bad start to his major league career running. Now he was up to, what, 0 for 17? He got his first hit on September 8th, a single off Atlee Hamaker, but he didn't get another hit the whole season. He ended the season with a .030 batting average, going one for 33. Meanwhile, Don Sutton went four and one with the Brewers, pitched them into the playoffs, and then into the World Series. He was 37. The Astros thought, there's not much left in the tank here. He would pitch another six seasons between Milwaukee and California, and finally end his career in Los Angeles. Kevin would go on to have a pretty decent career for the Astros. This ended up a pretty good trade for both teams. Kevin's first full season with the Astros was 1983. He played 88 games as a sub, hitting only 236 in that backup role. He also only had six walks and nearly 200 plate appearances, which not great. 1984, he started the season with an injured thigh and was used as a backup outfielder. He hit 260 with two home runs. The team leader, though, that year had only 12 home runs. So two is actually not that bad. Yeah, hitting in the Astrodome, just a brutal experience. And in 1984, again, Kevin only took six walks, this time in 331 at-bats. Maybe it was just hard to get walks in the Astrodome, too. It was a huge outfield in Houston. Terrible for power hitters. 340 down the line, 406 to straightaway center field. In 1985, they pulled the walls in to 325 and 400 to center. Bass won a starting spot in the outfield, playing 100 plus games in center field and starting 25 games in right field. He hit 269 with 16 home runs, 68 RBIs, and 19 stolen bases in 500 plus at bats. In 1986, it would be a big year for the Astros. They start the season picking up Billy Hatcher in the offseason to play center, and that allows Bass to focus on right field, and he would go on to have the best season of his career. Yeah, he hit 311 with 20 home runs and 22 stolen bases, adding five triples, 33 doubles. He had an OPS plus of 134. Astros also got great production from Glenn Davis, who hit 31 home runs, Billy Doran, who stole 42 bases, and a pitching staff led by Cy Young winner Mike Scott, Bob Nepper, and Nolan Ryan. And with Charlie Kerfeld on the staff, you know it's a winner. Kevin was consistent all year. He had multiple 10-plus game hitting streaks. One National League Player of the Week for June 29th. That week, June 22nd to 29th, he played in eight games, hitting 517 with three home runs. Then he had a 20-game hitting streak from July to August. That also earned him a spot in the All-Star game, which was at the Astrodome. Kevin had a huge ovation when his name was read off. Also, watching the video of this TV production, Whoever was announcing the names was not in sync with the camera, and they missed two guys. So the camera stops on two guys who don't get named. Everyone, including the people in the line who are getting announced, is very confused. It it was pretty hubris. Kevin did get in an at-bat in the third inning as a pinch hitter for Dwight Gooden. He got a decent ovation, but he got out in that single at-bat. Also during the 1986 season, 
Kevin got the nickname from the rest of his team, Rodney, after Rodney Dangerfield, as he was still mostly unknown and not yet an established star, gets no respect. So little respect that in one all-star preview, a writer got him confused with Randy Bass. <laughs> Randy Bass was busy winning his second straight NPB Triple Crown. The Curse of the Colonel had just been cast the year prior, but this sports writer got Randy Bass and Kevin Bass confused. While he was getting no respect, he did show off some of his own comedic skills with a pretty decent Sammy Davis Jr. impersonation. The Sammy Davis man? <laughs> I mean, like, you're just a real cool cat, man, for doing this for me. I mean that. And I really do. And I just want to thank all the people in New York, man, because it's just been a really gas of a time for me. You know what I mean, man? I can dig it, babe. I know you can, because I can. Hey, I really thank you for these. These are nice. You're welcome. What do you pay about? 90 bucks for these? Oh, we won't get into that. <laughs> Thanks a million. All right. How about Keith Jackson? Keith one more Jackson? time. Yes. Okay, here we are, everybody. We're here at the LCS playoffs. And I'm Keith Jackson, along with my co-host, Tim McCarver. What do you got to say about that, Tim? <laughs> That's a great Sammy Davis Jr. The Astros tap danced their way to the National League West title, finishing 10 games ahead of the Reds. The reward for their efforts, a chance to play the 108-win Mets in the National League Championship Series. The Astros won Game 1, a 1-0 complete game win from Mike Scott. Then they lost the next two games. Game 3 went to the bottom of the ninth with Houston up 5-4, but they lost on a walk-off two-run homer from Lenny Dykstra. Houston won Game 4. Then in Game 5, Kevin went 2-for-5, but the Mets won in extra innings to go within a game of the World Series. Game six of the National League Championship Series in 1986 is one of the greatest baseball games ever played. Houston took a quick lead going up 3-0 in the first. They could have extended it even further. Kevin Bass has walked and then made it to third base. And if you look at the box score, it's marked that he was out attempting to steal home. But what actually happened was Alan Ashby failed to put down a squeeze bunt and Bass is tagged out by Bobby Ojeda. Not totally his fault. Gets marked in the box score as a, as a caught stealing, but mostly his teammate just couldn't make contact on a bunt. The Mets end up tying the game 3-3 in the ninth inning, so that out at home really came into play. If they had been up 4 nothing or extended that lead even further, they might have gotten the win, extended it to a Game 7, put Mike Scott in with an opportunity to win a Game 7. But Kevin had a couple other opportunities to come to the plate and be a hero in this game because the game went to extra innings. He got a hit in the 12th inning. This time was actually attempting to steal and was thrown out in the 12th inning. In the 16th, the Mets go up 7-4. to four. You think the game is over, but the Astros come storming back in the bottom of the inning, and it's 7-6 to six, with Glenn Davis on first, Denny Walling on second, two outs. You have Kevin Bass at the plate against Jesse Orozco. In his career, Bass was 2-for-8 against Orozco to this point with two singles. Orozco is a lefty. Bass had a three twenty three average with 12 home runs off lefties in 1986, and Orozco threw him six straight breaking balls. During a mound visit, Keith Hernandez said he told Orozco, if you throw a fastball, we're going to fight. That strategy paid off. With a full count, Bass couldn't connect on a final breaking ball. He struck out to end the game, ends the series, sends New York to the World Series. 
Bass would later say, my adrenaline was so high for the whole series, most of it was like a blur except for that last at bat. And he would have all winter to think about it and the rest of his career because he never played in another playoff game. He did finish seventh in the MVP balloting that year, which was well-earned for a very good year. And another consolation prize, Kevin and the Astros, by making the playoffs that year, got the honor of a spot in RBI baseball. And that takes us to the RBI corner with Brian. We are back in the RBI corner with Brian. Brian, today we're talking about Kevin Bass and the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros being the team I always made my little brother play when he played against me in RBI baseball. So how are the Astros? Well, we talked about the Astros in RBI baseball in the Phil Garner and Charlie Kerfeld episodes, so be sure to check those from the archives. Far none, they're the worst team in RBI baseball. The worst two are pretty clear. It's Houston, St. Louis. But I'd say Houston's probably on its year on its own. If you focus on the positives first, the team has a lot of speed, just like St. Louis does as well. So if you're someone who likes to steal bases, likes to be aggressive in the base, base pads, maybe Houston's a team you can play with. Pitching isn't that bad. In fact, they have a lot of endurance from the starters. And the lineup is very left-handed. So if you're facing righty pitchers, you might have an inherent advantage by having a very left-handed lineup with Houston. So then what's the problem? Well, it's hitting a baseball with any sort of force. In the Houston lineup, only Glenn Davis in the cleanup spot has even average power, and even he isn't that great. Now, they do have a good bench with Davey Lopes and Phil Garner and Dickie Thon, but that's a good bench more relative to the normal lineup, and the normal lineup just isn't very good. The question becomes then, can you win with Houston? And I would say this, if you're good at RBI baseball, you absolutely can. With Houston, it's like you're playing small ball in a juice ball area, since RBI baseball scores tend to be pretty high. But it's not impossible to win, and sometimes it's actually very fun to try. You know, it's like trying to win with one hand tied behind your back, where you're focused more on strategy and guile than on just that sort of going up and mashing and hitting three-run homers. Well, how about Kevin Bass, the player? So sadly, there are no mustaches in RBI baseball or any sort of facial hair. In fact, the players in RBI baseball are uncommonly portly and barren, um, almost unnaturally so. But this means that you cannot bask in the glow of Kevin Bass's glorious mustache which looks like it's along the spectrum between, say, 2017 Aaron Rodgers and 1987 Eddie Murphy. So you don't get the mustache benefit from Kevin Bass, but he is the number five hitter in the Houston lineup, and that's a key lineup slot. In a game like RBI Baseball where there's a lot of offense, you often are able to get two batters on in the first inning, so the number five hitter can come up in a lot of key situations. Then the question becomes, how is Kevin Bass actually? Is he the player that he was in 1986, or is he the player that he was for the rest of his career, where he was maybe a pretty good regular, but not an all-star like he was in the 86 season? And unfortunately, the version that you get in RBI baseball is not really a superstar. He does have very good speed, uh, but he's an average hitter with limited power. So you're not getting the age 27 version of Kevin Bass. You're just getting that composite for who he was for his career. So is he worth playing? Is he worth starting? Or do you have to sub him out? You still have to play him. Ultimately, he's arguably one of Houston's top three or four hitters. And he's a lefty and he has good speed. And that is reason enough to keep him in the lineup. And just like with the 86 Astros, if you want to surprise people with Houston and you want to win games, 
you're going to need someone like Kevin Bass to come up big for you. So definitely keep him in the lineup. Well, thanks a lot, Brian. I guess this uh, explains why I went undefeated against my brother all those years. Maybe he should have been playing Lance Bass. There you go. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Nineteen eighty-seven, Houston dropped the Tequila Sunrise jerseys. Sadly, but would they be able to repeat their nineteen eighty-six success? We should go to the team leaders card here, and this might give us an indication of what this team looked like. We got the front of the card, which is kind of goofy. <laughs> Kevin's got a nice smile here. His mustache is—it's so full. It's so lush. This is probably a preseason game, but that. That mustache is in mid-season form. <laughs> Billy Hatcher looks less than pleased to be in this picture. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they told the guys this picture was going to be for. They don't, they don't seem all that enthused about it. Let's go to the back of 291 to look at the team leaders cards. And a couple things stand out. Let's see. Home run leader had 27 home runs, Glenn Davis. Yet the top batting average was Billy Hatcher, 296. And Kevin Bass is one of the leaders, which doesn't always happen, and that's because he had five triples. The pitching side of this, most games, L.A., Larry Anderson with 67, but the rest of that, aside from saves, is all Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan, as you would expect. Nolan Ryan this season led the National League with a 2.76 ERA, but had an 8-16 and record. This 1987 Astros team just could not replicate their 1986 performance. Maybe it was that they were a little bit lucky in 1986, but also this was the rabbit ball year, but Glenn Davis led the team with 27 home runs. He had had 30 the previous season. The team didn't take a step forward, and this was a big offensive year, but the Astros didn't really reflect that. The two guys who are on the front of the card, they both show up on the back of the card. They were good players on this team, but we probably should have had Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan, the two pitching stars of the team, as they both had fantastic seasons. But as we talked about in the Steve Bedrosian episode, Nolan Ryan didn't really get much respect this year because he had a 8-16 and 16 record, even though he led the National League with a 2.76 ERA. But those guys, or Glenn Davis, probably should have been on the front of the card. The Astros ended up under 500. They had a 20-win swing going from 96 wins to 76 wins this year. One big reason for that, Bob Nepper, who had been a, a great starter for the 86 team, going 17-12 and 12 with a 3.14 ERA, flipped that record to 8-17 and 17 in an ERA over 5. Their offense was decent. Bass had a similar line to 1986 hitting 284, 31 doubles, 19 home runs, 85 RBIs, and 21 steals, which is steady. But when the rest of the league is way up on offense and you have the same year you had in 1986, actually a little bit worse in terms of average, it's not as impressive when you look at it in that regard. One improvement he did have was an accomplishment. He became the first National League player to hit home runs from both sides of the plate in the same game, twice in the same season. After that somewhat disappointing season for the Astros, in 1988, Bass played 157 games for the third straight year. This is the last quote-unquote full season that he would play, close to 160 games. His average, like the rest of the league, dropped. He hit 
255, 14 home runs. He had a career-high 31 stolen bases. He also made history, a weird kind of history. On July 23rd, he was facing the previously mentioned Steve Bedrosian, and he had the longest at bat in history, 19 pitches. At the time, was the longest at bat in history. He fouled off 15 pitches, which set a record for the most foul balls in one at bat. And that record has since been broken. In 2018, Brandon Belt, noted chicken tender enthusiast, faced 21 pitches, fouling off 16 of them. But Bass had this ridiculous at bat with 15 foul balls against Bedrock. 1989 was a difficult year for Kevin. He fouled a ball off his shin in May, which led to a stress fracture and forced him to miss nearly half the season. He came back in August and finished the season with a 300 average and five home runs, which was a 129 OPS plus in 87 games. So a very solid half season. Too bad that he missed the first half. When Kevin was later asked about his most memorable game as an Astro, he pointed to August 20th, 1989. This is right after he returned from injury. He came back really hot, hitting over 380 in his first eight games back. But he didn't have a home run since May, since before the injury. The Astros were in the middle of a NL West race, two games out of first place. They were 69 and 55. They were looking for a sweep of the Cubs, who were at the time in first place in the NL East. They were making a run to the playoffs. And Bass went three for five in this final game of the series with five RBIs. He homered again from each side of the plate, and that included a ninth inning, one out grand slam off Mitch Williams to win the game eight to four. He just needed to get a hit. Even a fly ball would have won it, but he hit a grand slam to win the game. That earned Kevin a second National League Player of the Week award and was one of his most memorable games. After the 1989 season, Kevin was a free agent. He wanted a no-trade clause wherever he went. The Astros had shopped Kevin around in previous years and refused to include a no-trade clause. So that clause was important to Kevin in the future. San Francisco's general manager, Al Rosen, had been with Houston when they initially traded for Bass, and he offered a no-trade clause, the first one he ever offered as a GM. And that was enough for Kevin. He took the deal, a $500,000 signing bonus and $5.25 million over three years. A homecoming for Kevin and his wife, who were both from the Bay Area. Unfortunately, Kevin injured his knee during his first year with the Giants, which required surgery, limiting him to only 61 games, and he hit only 252. He played more in 1991, but he said he wasn't fully recovered, and it actually would take him three years to fully recover from that surgery. He hit only 233, and his defense suffered. He said, I didn't realize how important speed was to me. If you can't run, you can't hit. If you can't run, you can't play defense. Seems pretty self-evident, but it was a foundation of his game that he had to have speed to really be successful on the field. By 1992, he's almost fully back. He's hitting pretty well for the Giants, 268, seven homers in 89 games. Most importantly, he played those 89 games in about 100 team games, so he wasn't missing much time due to injury. But in August, he was traded to the Mets for a player to be named later. That guy would end up being a minor league player. Bass played about the same for New York as he had earlier in the season. He ended the season with a combined 269 average, nine home runs, 14 steals, a 108 OPS plus. So he's playing pretty well now. 
At the end of that season, he was a free agent again, and he re-signed with Houston. By this point, he was 34, and while he felt healthy, he didn't really get a chance to compete for a starting spot. He started only 43 games, but played pretty well, 284 with a 109 OPS plus in 229 at-bats. 1994, he was playing well in a platoon with Milt Thompson, hitting 310, and about to go into free agency when the strike stopped the season. He signed with Baltimore in 1995, but had a disappointing year there, hitting 244 with five home runs. After that disappointing time in, in Baltimore, he spent 1996 out of baseball. Earlier in his career, he had married a woman named Elaine. They were still married and are still married to this day, and they had four children. He spent 1996 being a dad, coaching Little League, thinking about what his next career move would be. He was thinking about getting into radio. Then he felt a pull to try to get back into the game for one more season. He said, the funny thing is, it doesn't matter how much money you have. My wife and I, were financially stable. We can do whatever we want and go wherever we want. But you realize that it's not really the answer. Your financial needs are met, but you need something to care about and that you can get some fulfillment out of. And so he felt this unfinished business. He decided to sign with the Angels, try to make a comeback. After four games at AAA Vancouver, he went four for 12 with a home run. So he's hitting okay, but then an Achilles injury forced him to retire. So closing the book on Kevin Bass, 14 seasons in the major leagues, batting average of 270, which is a 105 OPS plus, 118 home runs, 151 steals, 40 triples, and 248 doubles in a one-time All-Star. Hated to face, according to Kevin, Craig Death Lefferts. He went six for 37 against Lefferts and said that Lefferts had tricky stuff and was always ahead in the count. And in the like to face, he had the most at-bats against Tom Browning, hitting four home runs off of him and a 329 average. Also hit well against Mark Davis, 448 with three home runs. And Neil Heaton, 9 for 19 with three homers. How about in retirement? Kevin and Elaine retired in Texas. Two of his sons were selected in the 2007 Major League Draft, a big year for the Bass family. Garrett was picked out of Jacksonville State University in the 42nd round, and he played a few seasons in the Nationals organizations and then in indie ball. Justin was picked in the 21st round that year out of high school. He played until 2013. Kevin got good at golf in his retirement. He was a five-handicap golfer. And he went into real estate. He still shows up at Astros, old-timers games, fantasy camps, events, and does some TV appearances in the Houston market. All right. So here we had a card with a good picture, athletic Kevin Bass hitting a deep fly ball. Now that we've looked at his story a little bit more, what do we think? The stats on the back of this card told me that Kevin Bass was a player that I liked. Because at the time, a guy with 20 home run power and 20 steal speed... That was a rare combination. This is a time where not a lot of guys were hitting 30 home runs. You had Eric Davis, but he was an anomaly. Jose Canseco would come around and do a 40-40 season, but that was unheard of. So Kevin Bass seemed like a good power hitter, a great speed guy, but he peaked at about 2020. He was brought over in exchange for a 37-year-old future Hall of Famer. And this is a trade that ended up working out for both teams, the Astros they get a guy who between 1985 and 1989 would average three wins above replacement a season. A solid starter 
who would have an all-star caliber year in 1986 for a team that would come very close to a World Series. And it's too bad that the moment that most people remember about that 1986 season was that final out of the NLCS. He had a great year. Among National League outfielders, he was behind only Tony Gwynn, Tim Raines, and Eric Davis in wins above replacement. Kevin was realistic about his strengths and weaknesses. In a 2002 interview, he said his strengths were speed, strong arm, switch hitter, power, and one of his strengths he listed was average fielder, and that he was a smart player. He was realistic about his own abilities, and the stats bear that out. He wasn't an amazing outfielder, but he was an average outfielder. He wasn't a liability in the outfield. He listed his weaknesses as left-handed hitting techniques and base stealing techniques. We did see a caught stealing in the extra innings of that NLCS, but he listed a weakness as a left-handed hitting techniques. He wasn't that much worse as a left-handed batter. He had a better on-base percentage as a lefty, but not as much power. His OPS was 709 as a lefty compared to 774 as a righty, but against righty starters, Versus lefty starters, his slash lines were basically the same, hitting 270 and 271, and an OPS that was within .001. So basically equal as versus lefties and righty starters. But he felt that he could have or should have been even better. He held himself to a high standard, and that's what made him an all-star player in 1986. For a few years, Bass was one of the offensive stars for the Astros, a team that played in this huge Astrodome that didn't have great power hitters, but now his name only shows up one time on the Astros all-time leaderboard. He's been pushed down by a lot of guys in subsequent years. His name shows up as 10th in power speed number behind Bill Doran, not a guy we think of as a power hitter. So while he was a 2020 guy, which was good in the huge Astrodome, he wasn't putting up 30 home runs or multiple 30 plus steal seasons even in the rabbit ball year of 1987. But at his peak between 1985 and 1989, he was valued at 15.5 wins above replacement combined, which is 20th among outfielders. He's right ahead of guys who are much more highly thought of today, guys like Andre Dawson, Jose Canseco, Dave Winfield, Willie McGee. Kevin Bass is ranked ahead of them. Two of those guys are Hall of Famers, and three of them won MVP awards during that stretch. So he put together a few solid seasons. He was a good outfielder, but that 1989 knee injury set him back and he was never really the same. In a different situation and with better luck, he might have been a superstar. Instead, he's a somewhat forgotten Houston Astro. So turning out to be a a good player, not one of the greats for the Astros, but two good cards and a great story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you used to be a member of the Rat Pack, we would love to see evidence of this on Twitter. Send it to us at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.